That brings us to our consideration on the back page of your bulletin. And this is from Mark Twain. Um, following the majority is not always good. And he writes this, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. <laughs> and that is so true. I mean, and, you know, you just find particularly today because of the mass media and what it does, the majority is not always right. I mean, there's a lot of people who are believing things that are just absolutely out to lunch. And you can see it in the marketplace today. Uh, transgenderism comes to mind. <laughs> I mean, it's just stuff that, where people are absolutely out to lunch. And so we wanted to continue our message, and I wanted to go back and show you the riches of God's grace and what they do in stimulating the believer to glorify God. And so we've been talking about the riches over the last uh, two weeks, and we wanted to continue today and look at some of those things that God has provided for the believer. Now, I like um, uh, Lewis Bird Chafer calls it the 33 riches of divine grace. Uh, Pastor Dave calls it the riches, and then he breaks it into positions and possessions. However you do it, the point is, is that God has provided things for the believer today that if you have an appreciation for these things and you understand what God has provided, they're not physical riches. They're spiritual. And so you understand what God has provided for you. You understand how great a salvation we have. That this is not a willy-nilly thing here. And I just think that the average <clears throat> believer doesn't understand it. How many people live in uh, this life and die and they never understand the provisions that God has provided for you? And order to be able to live up to that. And it's not that you have to do it. The Holy Spirit will produce it in you if you just allow him. And most people live their lives and they never allow the Holy Spirit to do the work um, that he wants to do in your life. And I just could imagine that, you know, I don't think that he's doing this, but the Holy Spirit is sitting there waiting for you to stop. To stop doing what you're doing. And you got people who they think that they know best about how to order their life. God's not going to make you order your life in a certain way. He's just going to, okay, that's what you want to do. Here we go. <laughs> it just becomes a mess, an absolute mess. And the believers don't really have a full appreciation. God's already done the work in the person of Christ. Why don't you just stop? Just stop. And I just continue to tell people, I just don't think life is that complicated. I don't believe life is that complicated. I think we complicate life by not allowing God to work in our lives. We complicate it. It's not that complex. I don't believe it's that complex. I think we allow it to be complex because we want to be in control. And it, we just make a mess of it. I'm reminded of Joyce's dad when he was alive, and he liked to drive on the little carts in the store. And he made a mess of it. <laughs> he would run into the shelves, <laughs> displays, just everywhere. <laughs> and he would just do stuff, and we tried to get him off of it. <laughs> But I think he was having a grand time doing it. And do you know that's what some people are doing in their life? They're just having a grand time, just making one mess after the other. And they won't allow the Holy Spirit to do the work. And we might be able to glorify God. And it's just, it's just tragic. But when you, when you understand these things that God has provided for us, it's meant to allow you to be at ease so that you can say, it's already done. What am I doing trying to reduplicate this? Why don't I just rest in what God has provided and who I am in Christ and let the Holy Spirit do the work through me? Wouldn't that be much easier? It would be much easier. Again, it's not complex, but in a way it is because of the fallen nature of people, we want to do it our way. Well, let's look at what God has provided today. And you'll see that he's provided uh, tools for the believer. He's reconciled us to God, bringing opportunity for us to be able to glorify him. And he's also provided tools for us to be able to operate 
in order to be able to bring glory to the Father. So let's look at that, and we'll see, hopefully at the end of this, you'll say, well, I wasn't doing that, or, hey, you know what? Here's a way that I can glorify God by reveling in what he's already provided and resting from the work that I'm doing on my own. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers that there is rest in our position that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, that he's already done the work. And as we as believers rest from our labors, that we are able to enjoy the benefits of the grace that you've provided. And in doing so, allowing the Holy Spirit to produce the life of your son through us and allowing uh, you to be glorified in our day-to-day activities of this life. And we're thankful for that potential. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so we see today that God has reconciled the believer. Um, And so notice in 2 Corinthians, we read the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. That the believer has been reconciled. That we were seen as being at enmity against God. And so I like the way that Lowell Nieder gives the definition here concerning reconciliation or the word to be reconciled. To reestablish proper, friendly, interpersonal relationships after these have been disrupted or broken. The ponential features of this series of meanings involve disruption of friendly relationships because of presumed a real provocation or overt behavior designed to remove hostility and restoration of original friendly relations to make things right with one another. And so you have these people who are trying to make themselves make things right with God, and they think that they can do it. What a joke. And what an absolute waste of time. And how many people have you talked to who believe that they got to get it right with God? before they can get right or come to church or to do whatever it is that they're doing. And from a believer's standpoint, we understand that the son has already done the work. Notice in Romans chapter 5, earlier you see this, that man, God has never counted man to be an enemy, but men have counted themselves and even to this day are counting themselves to be enemies against God. And so notice in verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by him into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, we glory in tribulations, knowing that, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience Experience and experience hope and hope makes us not ashamed because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts um, through the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. And so this idea that we were at point at one point in time, we were enmity. We were at enmity against God. God. Through Jesus Christ solved the problem. And so we don't have to. Um, do it on our own. Now, notice in First uh, Corinthians seven eleven, this word for reconciled, meaning to bring two parts back together. And you see an example of this in a wedding uh, situation. And so, First Corinthians seven is uh, talking about. Uh, it spends a lot of time talking about marriage, and um, you have a lot of information to hear about marriage. And so. One of the things that's interesting is Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that it's better uh, that you be not married if you can. Because he says that anyone that gets married, and he's not saying don't get married, but he says if you get married, it's going to pull you into the world system in a way that it wouldn't if you were single. Right. And so then he goes on um, in verse seven, he says, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man has his proper gift. For one after this manner and another after that, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is married uh, better to marry than to burn. And so here's how you know that I'm not like the Apostle Paul. Right. (laughs) If you can't contain yourself. Right. 
if I can't contain myself, I, I, no matter how much I say, I want to be like Paul and I'm, I'm not going to get married. Well, yeah, well, you probably need to get married. <laughs> this is how you know that you're not going to be one that's going to be single for the rest of your life. And that's, that's a really a line of demarcation there. Notice in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not his wife depart from her husband. And if she, but if she departs, let her remain unmarried. Or notice, be reconciled. And there's our word, geto, our form of that. Let her be brought back together uh, to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. And so in a marriage situation, this is the optimum that you would want in a marriage situation. And um, for them, the two sides that might be against each other to be brought back together um, in that situation. And so this idea of reconcile, to make things right. And so um, all mankind, because of the fall, was at enmity against God. Man couldn't make it right. God made it right, you see. And the people don't understand that. Even some believers don't understand that. God has made it right. You don't have to make it right. God has made it right, you see. And notice, you see it again in the 10th verse of Romans chapter 10, where man was estranged from God and became hostile enemies against him at the fall of Adam. And you can see this. This you can see with the unsaved world, that they are in hostility against God. Particularly, what's always interesting to me is you can bring up any other religion I could go out there in a Mormon garb and stand on this corner and start saying some of the most amazing things and no one would say a word. I could dress as a hairy Christianer. You could do anything you want to do. Just don't go out there as a Christian and say things about the Bible. And then all of a sudden, boy, you people become angry. Well, there's no, this is not an accident, you see. This is not an accident. And so notice we could have kept reading there in, in Romans chapter 5. We'll pick it up again in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There was a guy in St. Louis um, who was an old sailor, and he was at a um, revival back in the day. And he said it finally hit him. That God did not, Christ did not die for the righteous. He actually died for those who are ungodly. Right? And he said that, that that just really opened his eyes. And well, so a lot of people don't really believe that they're as bad as they think they are, right? <laughs> Notice verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure. A good man, some would even dare to, to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, notice this um, in verse 8, that while we being sinners, we were uh, in a continuation, we were in the state of being or existing as sinners. And as, even in that state, Christ died as a substitute for us. Now, you look at it from a human point of view. Now, how many of you would do something for a guy that you didn't like or a person you didn't like? I bet you I couldn't get a one hand in here. <laughs> that would go up, right? But for a person you might think, was a, ah, I'm not, they're a good person. You go out of your way for that person, Right? But you know, that's not what God did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute, that for as a substitute for us in our place. And you see, continue to see that word hoper, it's used all the way throughout the New Testament to drive the point that Christ died in our place. That he was such a perfect substitute for our sins. It's as if we had died for our own sins. And God the Father sees it that way. And notice verse 9. Much more than being justified by his blood. 
or really, you say, through his blood, we shall be saved from wrath, from the wrath, through him. And these people who say that you're going through the tribulation period, those poor schmoes, what a tragic existence they have. Some of them might be believers. I was listening to this guy this week on a broadcast called uh, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And it was interesting what he was, some of the stuff that he was saying. And some of these reform guys, they believe that the church is going through the, this, through the tribulation period. Okay, you know, I, you can't convince somebody of that. The scriptures tells you very clearly that we're not. But if a person wants to believe that, if you want to torture your mind with that, have at it. I can't stop you. Go for it. But clearly, scripture says we've been delivered from what? And it's not just wrath. You have an articulate use of the word orgase there. The wrath. What wrath? Well, there's a wrath coming. And if you go through the, uh, uh, the uh, book of Revelation, you see rag, uh, orge, wrath everywhere. That's going to be wrath. And you're going to see it. And we're not, we've been delivered from it. Notice he says, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And I would say, uh, and they actually translate that correct there, through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, uh, to God, how? Through the death of his son. And so when? Being at enmity against him. When we were enemies against him. He reached out and he was the one that made things right. How many times have you had a problem with someone and you just ignored it? You say, I'm waiting for that person. They need to make the move. I'm not doing it. <laughs> the one that caused the problem, they do it. Right? And what if God had done that? You make the move, and then I'll respond. So while we were yet sinners, this, God reconciled us through the death of his son, and being reconciled, we are, uh, really shall be saved by his life, uh, as a result of his life. Notice in verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now receive uh, the uh, <laughs> translated recon- uh, atonement, but it's the reconciliation. And then just verse 12, just read that while we're here. Wherefore, by one man, sin, and I would say here, the sin nature entered into the world. And death by the sin nature. And so death passed unto all men, for all sinned at a point in Adam. And so it's interesting. It shows how we were, in, we had, we were at enmity to him as a result of the fall of Adam. And God was the one that put an end to the hostility while we were yet enemies against him. He was the one. So you, you realize how much that does when you understand that? Why am I have to justify myself? What am I doing trying to just? God's already done it. I don't have to strive to make this relationship right with the Lord. It's already been done. And so notice, back in the Second Corinthians, where we read our scripture, uh, chapter five, verse eighteen through twenty. <laughs> and notice in verse seventeen, therefore, if any man, you see those italicized words there? They they italicized words. I like the way Doctor Schaefer used to say this. When you see those words leaning over. They're leaning over like they look like they're getting ready to fall out of the book <laughs> because they weren't in the original text. <laughs> so they put that there and they italicize words for good English. Right. And so really, therefore, if any man be in Christ and notice he is a new creation. Not creature. That's really a horrible translation, not a play on words there either. It's not a good, good translation. And let me show you why I say that. Hold your finger there and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. 
This word is uh, often this uh, form of the word katizo, which is to create out of nothing. And notice, there is a new man that God created, and it's the body of Christ with Christ as the head. And notice in chapter 2, you see this word used again. Um, in verse 8, for by grace are you saved, or having been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, I believe that's going back to the faith. You didn't save yourself. And so if you could save yourself, wouldn't there be a lot more people saved? Don't you think a lot more people would come to that conclusion? Oh, yeah, 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 that does make sense. This is right. I was talking to a fellow yesterday at a funeral, and it was interesting. It was a kid. And after, he actually, I just thought to myself after I had talked to him, this kid, he didn't grow up in the church, and he was just putting things together. And I thought, now this is interesting. He understands some things that most people in your churches don't understand. And I told him, you know, sometimes it's better not to grow up in the church. It really is. You know why? Not because it can't be a good thing, but because people become enamored with the traditions over the truth, you see. And the traditions drown out the truth. And you can see that. But couldn't he just put this together if it wasn't, if it was just on the basis of human ability? He had some information, but he didn't put it all together. And so notice it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift from God, not out from works. There's nothing that you could do to be saved. Nothing. It is a gift of God, not out from works, lest any man should boast. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago, right? God chose the foolish things of the world, the base things of the world, the things that are nothing. Now you see it in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are the result of his making, or you could say we are his poem. That really comes from that word. Now notice created, and there's our word. In Christ Jesus, we are part of a new creation. We have been created anew. Where? In Christ So this is what Paul can say over in 2 Corinthians. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. What you and who you were when you were born into this world is over from God's point of view. From God's reckoning. You're part of something totally new. And do you know that's the part that people can't let go of? Now I've got people in my family and they want to exalt in the word Jeffrey. I'm a Jeffrey. And I'm looking at my family and thinking, oh boy, <laughs> that don't mean much. When I see some of the tomfoolery going on in our family, what does that stand for? <laughs> Not much of anything, right? But to be in Christ, to be part of the new creation, there's no tomfoolery there. And so notice he says, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And so the question is, do we see ourselves this way? Do we see ourselves? Where's our starting point? Do we see ourselves as being in Christ far superior than any other relationship that we have in this world? Is it better than our families? Is it better than how we're seen and in, in on our jobs? Is it better than we see? Is that how we identify? Now, you know that word today, I identify. <laughs> some people using that word today in some very bad way. Do you identify as being part of the new creation? <laughs> and so that's a huge thing. Just like, I mean, you can see it in a negative sense with that, right? All of these people who are identifying themselves in their own reasoning, in their own minds, as being something that's really not true. This is true. You can actually count yourself to be who God says that you are. 
And really, that's real. That's real. And so I heard someone yesterday, they were uh, talking about this idea of identifying and woman reasons. She said, okay, well, if you just go by the fact that you can identify whatever pops into your mind, there was a guy that was stalking me that identified himself as being my husband. So does that meant that I should have dropped everything and go and marry him? You realize the ludicrousness of this? It's ludicrous. And yet, when we see it from God's point of view, this is real. This is real. And so Paul says, and all things are of out from God. God is the, is the source of it. In verse 18, and, he, and I really do think this goes to back to God the Father, who has reconciled us to himself. And how did he do it? Through, and that word by, I would translate it through the instrumentality. Jesus Christ was the instrument of how he made this happen and has given to us. Now, here, I think in this context to the apostles here, the ministry of reconciliation to wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing. And this is an interesting thing here, not counting their trespasses against them. And so remember, we, we and it's so a lot of people don't make a big difference in the high deal of the sin thing. And they think you can sin in your mind and they don't understand trespass, unrighteousness. They don't understand temptation, all of this. Trespass is the time that Adam decided that he was going to eat from that tree. All men fell. He trespassed before he even did it. The moment that he decided that he was going to eat from that tree, he made a determination that he was going to eat from that tree. Do you know that's what scripture calls a trespass? And what does that mean? The moment I determine to do something that I'm tempted by, I've offended God. And that's what that is. And so, and so he says, not counting men's trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And so here you see that. And so God has bought, he has dealt with the enmity that was there between man and him. Man was at enmity against God. God's not sitting there, you know, like two different parties. And sometimes we do this with people. And people get upset with us. You say, you go get upset with me. Well, I'll give it back and give it just as good as I get it. Right? God's not sitting there like a child doing this, throwing barbs back and forth toward the unsaved man. It's the unsaved man that is at enmity against him. You see. And he's done something about it by actually making things right through reconciliation. Now, there's several things that you see that uh, believer God has provided through the cross work that provides for believers the tools that we need to operate. And notice the thing that you see is that the believer has liberty today in Christ. Now, under law, um, I believe this liberty is pertaining to being free from law. But the Gentiles have never been under law. You know what are the things that we're freed from today? You are free from your sin nature. You have been made free from your sin nature. The unsaved man has this fallen nature. And we do too. We all have it. I wish we didn't have it. It's horrible, isn't it? Just some of the things that go through your mind. You just say, get out of there. (laughs) That's not good. And you just, but you know that we have gained an ability not to act upon it. The unsaved people, they don't have a they don't really have a choice in many instances. And so this word for liberty, and notice, and we'll start with our scripture in Romans 8, verse 2. <clears throat> and the idea is translated here, it's the word for free. We've been made free. And there's a principle here. Now notice there's these people who want to harp on law. And they think there's law everywhere, law all the way places in scripture. And it's funny, they miss these laws. <laughs> I want to just tell them, hey, there's some more laws if you want some. Here's some right here. <laughs> Notice in Romans chapter 7. Uh, and we'll pick it up at the end of the uh, chapter 7. And notice in verse 21. I find then a law. 
Now, this is not the Mosaic law, but it's a principle that says when I desire to do good, evil is present with me. Right. Or everybody can understand. They've experienced that. You have this desire to do what is good, and yet the evil is present. Notice he goes to another law, verse 22. For I delight in the law from God after the inward man. Well, what is that? Is that a law we need to live by? But then he goes on, verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring us against the law of my mind. You see, law is as good as the context it's used in. You see? You've got to see what is it talking about here. <clears throat> and bringing me into the captivity of the law of the sin nature that is in my members. And then he goes on to say, because of this principle, oh, the wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, notice verse 25, a really bad translation again. And I would say it doesn't say I thank God through Jesus in the original it's really one word, grace. Grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that's how we are able to be set free from this wretched entity called the sin nature. So then it's just a good translation, the transition right into chapter 8. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus <clears throat> and here you have a, a translational issue here. Now, ironically, your NIV gets this right. It gets this right. And someone says a squirrel can find a, a, a nut every now and then. <laughs> but the NIV gets this right. And they translate this accurately from the original. The rest of that part is not there in the original language. It's now, therefore, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Period. Now, if you have an interlinear, you could just look right over there and see that the Greek doesn't actually add the rest of that to it. Why? He goes to tell you, verse 2, for the law, um, uh, really, uh, the law pertaining to the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of the sin nature and death. And so there's a principle concerning how one is able to live out their life, their, uh, their position in Christ Jesus, that frees the believer from this principle of the sin nature that leads to death, you see. And so this word for uh, free, it's the word for, actually it's translated liberty, it's the word elothero, and it means to be, um, I would give it this definition, liber to liberation, to be untethered from a binding source that impedes one's ability to operate effectively. And so what is impeding the person or people more than anything else, and particularly as it relates to the believer today, the greatest enemy for the believer is not Satan. It's not the world. It's me. <laughs> it's my fallen nature. Now, I was, you know, I like to tell people this all the time because it's really one of the best ways that you can actually illustrate it to people that they can see it. So I was talking to this young man yesterday and I said, now, you could see that we're no good. And I can prove it to you. And he says, well, how? Well, you guys know what I did to him. I just said, well, could you write down all the thoughts that have gone through your mind over the last month? Oh, no. Do you know I've not got a positive reaction from not one person that have said that yet? And then I said, well, why? Why would you not do that? He says, because there are some bad things that go through my mind. <laughs> Everyone understands that, right? Yeah. And I told him, well, you're not by yourself. Do you see all of these people in here? Bad things go through their mind, but they'll never tell you. They will never tell you that those things are going through their minds as well. Right? And it proves that we have this nature that's a fallen nature. And it has the propensity to do some of the most horrific things. And most people, just out of the fact that they were trained well, um, you know, families discipline their kids, and when the kids are little, when they say, stop, don't do that, it trains the kids not to do certain things in their sin nature. And just think, if you didn't have the police, 
are government officials that are stopping this in nature, you would see absolute anarchy going on. And so you don't really see this in nature for all the good. Most of it is tamped down. Right? And so, but we have it and we've been set free as believers from it. It doesn't have to rule over us. We can actually say no to it. Now, I'll just give you a couple of scriptures here. Notice in, uh, well, let's go to this scripture first, and then we'll circle back uh, to Romans. In in John chapter 8, the Lord was talking to the uh, Jews about this sin nature, this problem of the sin nature. And the one that was practicing the sin nature is actually a slave to it. If you are practicing your sin nature, you know what it proves? You are in bondage to it. Right. You're in bondage to it. And so he was telling the Jews this and they didn't think that he knew what he was talking about. So notice we'll pick it up in verse 32 or 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, there's a form of our word um, and it's a future That's looking at the fact that there's a point in time that there's going to be a doctrine that teaches you how to be free from your sin nature. Now, notice what they say to him. Verse 33. They think that he's talking about physical slavery. And notice their response. Verse 33. Then answered. uh, They answered him. We be Abraham's seed and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? You shall be made free. And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever, the the word committeth there, it's an interesting word there. It's the word poeo in this participle form, and it's the, you're continually doing it. You're continually doing or operating in the sin nature. And I want to say that scripture makes a delineation between acts of sin and practicing of sin. Whoever commits or continually doing this sin, and I would say the sin nature, is a servant of it. Now, we call it all kinds of things in the society today. Addictions. Oh, this person has this addiction. And I think that when you call something something that scripture doesn't call it, you'll never actually have a victory over it. Because you're dealing in some kind of fairy tale world, and that's where the world is on a lot of these things. They have no idea what they're talking about. And so notice in verse 35, and the servant abides not in the house for, or into the age, but the son abides uh, for, or into the age. And so notice the ideal, the one doing continually the sin nature. It proves that when I'm doing that, I'm a servant to it. You ever told somebody who had an addiction? You know, you just got a, you're just a slave to your sin nature, that's all. You're just a slave to your sin nature. Your sin nature has the better of you. Do you know that we have been set free from our sin nature? Notice in Romans chapter 6. Now, I didn't have this in your outline, so Don would say that that was for free. (laughs) Romans chapter 6. And notice in verse um, 1. And we'll read down through it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in the sin nature that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall that we that are dead to the sin nature live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And so this is an interesting thing. And I think it's worth putting the circle here on the board here. So here is. You were, when you were saved, you were baptized into Christ. Courtney talked about this last quarter in the Bible Institute. And so you were baptized into Christ. And as a result of being baptized into Christ, and I would say here, probably want to put this. Right. And so you were baptized into Christ. You were taken out of this position and put over here from God's reckoning. And you say, well, I didn't see that happen. Well, do you see the transactions happen at the bank when you make a bank transaction? When you go on the computer and you tell them to move money, did you see them do it? Well, really, they didn't do it because they don't have any money. I hope you know that. 
they just did a little transaction on their computer and they moved in reckoning your money from one account to the next. That's all they've done. And this is what's happened in God's mind to you. That you've been moved from here to here. And that's how he reckons it. And so Paul was saying, now as a result of being in this, then we were seen together with the work that Christ accomplished and that we were, we were uh, buried together with him, verse 4, by baptism into his death, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. For since, in other words, if since you have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man, right here, our position in Adam, is, has been crucified together with him. And so that's no longer, right? That, and why? And here's what it did. That the body of sin or the sin nature might be, I wish it would. Now, we said destroyed in our English language, but that's not the word there. The word destroyed is actually the word for rendered inoperable. Rendered inoperable. And so uh, we, I think there was a uh, thing during Acts that was dealing with that. I was looking at it earlier. Um, and this idea of being rendered inoperable, uh, it was in Ephesians, I think it was, where it says that the law has been rendered inoperable. Well, it hasn't been destroyed. We know it hasn't been destroyed because they're going to go back under law in the tribulation period. But it's been unplugged. It's not, it doesn't have the power over, certainly it doesn't have, didn't have the power over the Jews anymore. It doesn't have the power over believers. Because our position in Christ, we can experience the grace of God as we see ourselves there. And it gives us the power to be able to overcome our sin nature. And Paul talks about that throughout the rest of that chapter. And notice, you see, in uh, Galatians chapter 5, Paul uh, really tries to exhort the uh, Galatian believers to stand fast in this freedom. And not to try to use other methods to overcome the sin nature. You know, a lot of the times when we don't want to live in our position and experience the grace of God, we try to use other methods to overcome the sin nature by just trying to, you know, grit your teeth and just bear it. And, you know, maybe you can avoid certain problems with the sin nature, but ultimately it brings about other problems. It's like trying to put your finger in a dike that has holes in it, right? You don't have enough fingers. And grace is able to do the job, though. And so notice, this is what was happening in, in, among the Galatian churches. They were um, trying to show other people how righteous they were. Do you know you don't have to show other people how righteous you are? I stand in the righteousness of God. I told you that 2 Corinthians 5.21 passage is a real passage that I use all the time. I wear that scripture out because I see myself as being righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf, you see. Right? And so I don't have to justify myself to men. God's already done the work. And so people try to justify themselves and they come up with all these things to try to show people, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. Look, I do this. I sing. I go to church every Sunday. Look at all these great things that I do when there's only one justification. It's the work that the Son has accomplished, you see. And so Paul is talking to the Galatian churches. and He says in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, and there's our word, the freedom which Christ has made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. And for all of these people who say, well, I, I live by the law. We got to live by the Ten Commandments. Do you do it all? Have you done every single one of them? And if you've broken one of them, you have broken them all. Christ has become of no effect to you, whosoever are justified by law. And again, there's an Ann Arthur's use of law there. Even the ones you make up for yourself. You who show yourself to be righteous by law, you are fallen from grace. 
then the work that Christ accomplished on the cross meant nothing. And notice you can see that this is related uh, to the sin nature. On down, um, he talks about the fact of um, verse 13, for brethren, you have not, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, the sin nature. But by love, by means of love, serve one another. So God has made us free from the sin nature. He's untethered us from it so it can't control us, not so that I can do what I want to do, but so that I can actually be free to serve the saints. In really a, a very unhypocritical manner. Believers are provided forgiveness by God. Notice you see that in Ephesians 4.32, this word for forgiveness is the word charismai. It means to grant something graciously due to an offense perpetrated, perpetrated against them. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. There's several words for forgiveness. This one is the word charismai, and it, uh, it's used in Ephesians 4.32. And notice... Um, well, I'm in Ephesians 5. And so Paul is exhorting the, the believers at Corinth, I mean, at, uh, excuse me, in Ephesus. I got Corinth on my mind. Now, notice some of the things he tells them not to do. And it shows you that believers can do these things, even as believers, if you're not filled by the Holy Spirit, you have the propensity to do this. And so he says in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I would say the spirit belonging to your mind. That the human spirit is where you're renewed again. And as you live in that renewed mind, you'll avoid some of these things that he's talking about here. And that you put on the new man. The new man is our position here in Christ, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, <clears throat> for we are members one of another, <clears throat> Notice what he says, be angry. Now, the word for angry there is uh, um, orge, uh, to be wrathful. You have a couple of wrath words. One is tumas. And I know that you guys don't experience this, but you have a, there are people who get angry with people, and it doesn't boil over. It's just underneath the surface. Now, I know that you guys don't understand that because you have never done that. But there are people who feel that way, Right. But then there are people who get angry with people and it comes out. <clears throat> and this is the ideal here, this second one. Be angry <clears throat> and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. <clears throat> or really, the idea of letting something come along aside this provocation, this uh, <clears throat> anger that you have that will provoke you <clears throat> to do something that's sin. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the things which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve, or really stop grieving the Holy Spirit. And this idea of thoroughly causing this um, sadness with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit desires to work in the life of the believer and the believer won't let him do his job. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God, wherefore you were sealed unto the day of, of redemption. Let all bitterness, um, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all evil. That word malice is evil. And be ye uh, kind to one another. That word for kind is gracious. Isn't it wonderful when you see people who are just conduct themselves in a gracious manner? You know, you, when you're around people and you have to feel like you're walking on eggshells, that's just not a good place to be, is it? Be gracious one to another, tenderhearted, and forgiving uh, one another. Or really, it's a. Uh, Forgiving yourselves, you have this reflexive here, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven 
you. Really, it's a form of uh, this uh, charisma. It's from grace. is to grant something graciously due to an offense perpetrated against them. God has graciously granted forgiveness to the believer. And so you see how that's uh, worked in which men perpetrated an offense against God and God has granted the forgiveness of it. Believers are outlawed. Excuse me, I said outlawed. <coughs> My computer, no matter how much I tried to put in lawed, it kept changing it to outlawed, and I didn't catch that one. <laughs> <laughs> so change that to in lawed. Um, First uh, Corinthians nine twenty one. It didn't like in lawed for some reason. I did catch the other ones. But believers are in lawed to Christ. Now notice it's in First Corinthians nine twenty one. So the hue and cry of people who you tell that you are living by grace, you have these people who throw out the word antinomian. You're just an antinomian. You're against law. No, and I want to tell these people that I am not against the law. I am just not under law. There is a difference. There is a difference. And so it's not that we're not without law, but that we are in law. It's the really correct statement that is made to Christ. Now notice Paul says something in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and it's really interesting, the statement that he makes here. He says he talks about what he should do and how he should operate in verse uh, 16. For though I preach the gospel... I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is to me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, um, and so this, for this idea of freely, without constraint, I have a reward. Now, he's talking about him because I'm not the steward of the dispensation. You're not the steward of the dispensation, but Paul was. And so he says, if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation, really, see how they put of the gospel? It's translated that way. Really, it says a dispensation is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power uh, in the gospel. Or really that word for power is authority. And it's interesting, the word that those are translated, it's really important to, when you see those power words, look and see what's really being said there. And that word for power there is the word exousia, which is the right to do something. And so Paul says, I have a right to do things as the steward of this dispensation, but it doesn't mean that I abuse that right, you see. For though I be free, verse 19, from all men, yet I have made myself a servant unto all. I, that I might gain more. And you can see this with the Corinthians. He had the right to ask for uh, support, financial support from these, uh, the Corinthians, but he wouldn't. And he said, I, I had the authority to be able to do that, but he didn't do it because he didn't want uh, the Corinthians to have the wrong opinion of uh, the ministry. Verse 20, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. Now he's not saying here that he's a chameleon. What he's saying is that he's recognizing what's happening with these various groups of people and he's trying to identify with them in order to be able to win them over. To them that are under law, as under the law. You see, there's a different group of people that are not under law. He makes a distinction here, to them that are under law. Well, if everyone was under law, would he have to make this statement? You see, he wouldn't have to make that statement. He says that there's a specific group of people who are under law, and to them that are under law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, see, there's a group of people who don't have the law, right? As without law. And notice that he's going to make this statement. Being not without law to God, but under law to Christ. Oh, really, that's a really... That really makes a lot of sense there in terms of what we understand. Uh, but I would say, in law to Christ, and that's what the original word actually says. 
that I might gain them that are without law. And I think he's talking here to those Gentiles who've never been under law. And so being without law to God would really, I would better translate it, existing without a law from God. But on the contrary, being under the law to Christ or better understood, in law to Christ. In other words, I'm not just a free agent to do whatever I want to do. That I'm actually a servant uh, in the body of Christ to allow God to use me to accomplish his will. So why have I been set free from my sin nature? So I could be useful to God. I'm sure that you see a lot of people, and some of them believers, they can't get over their sin natures. Their sin natures are such that they are actually unproductive. They can't be used for God's purposes because they can't get their sin natures under control. And so notice this idea of being in law, and I would give it this definition, to be subject to order that which is lawful, adhering to proper standards. And that's the way that you see it used in scripture. Uh, And so adhering to proper standards that God has provided in the body of Christ. Now, somebody goes in and they say that all of the imperatives that are used in scripture in the New Testament is that they have the form of a law. No, I don't think so. Do you know that if you go back to the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that were used in the Ten Commandments, that they were punitive? Do this or else. This is kind of what we said to our kids when they were little. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the do this, you need to do this, right? Uh, and so there's, this is not that kind of thing. That in the body of Christ, we get to do what God wants us to do. We don't do it because we're forced or constrained to do it. We get to do it, you see. And that's a whole different standard. And that's what Paul is talking about, about being in Lord to Christ. There's a standard in which I want to do that which is well-pleasing to God. Now, we'll close in 2 Corinthians, and you'll see this with the Apostle Paul as he says this. <clears throat> you can see his motivation. It wasn't a motivation to, that he was going to receive harm if he didn't do that which God wanted him to do. Notice his attitude here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> in verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be, see that word acceptable? We may be well pleasing to him. See that word we labor? It's actually we are zealously devoted to the cause. We are ambitious. To do that which is well-pleasing to him. You see, this is not constraint. This is not do this or you're going to suffer the consequences. We've been set free from the law. We've been in law to Christ that we might serve him out of the proper motivation. And what's that motivation? Notice Paul's motivation here in verse 10. For it is necessary that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad, or really things done through the body. In other words, the body is the instrument by how you're doing these things. And so what's what's my motivation? I'm not going to be judged. But do you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that our works are going to be judged? And that's the thing. That's what my motivation is. I want to be well-pleasing to God when it comes to the beam of seat judgment, that those things that I've done through the body are going to be seen as being done 
in consistency with what God desired for my life. A lot of people don't understand good relationships. They only understand being motivated by fear, being motivated by drudgery. I've got to do this. I'm married to this smo. I've got to I've got to fulfill my responsibilities and obligations to him, you know. Or I got this bad kid and, you know, I don't want to really help him, but I'm obligated to do it, you know. Everything in the lost world is by drudgery or guilt or fear. God has set us free so that we can serve him out of the right motivation. And as the believer understands these things that he's provided for us, we are able to glorify the Father because we're free from all of this stuff that would impede us from doing things outside of what he desires. And that allows us to be able to glorify God in the right way.